So why don't you turn with me to Hosea chapter eight for today's study. We, we usually draw a text from our upcoming Wednesday night study. We did finish chapter eight on Wednesday. Uh, so I'm gonna do a little different thing. I'm gonna back up and catch a verse that I, I sort of had to quickly you know, roll over just uh, on Wednesday night that I really wanted to do a little more time with this single verse because it's, um, it's I think an important one, especially for today. And then we'll proceed to chapter nine on Wednesday. Um, the Bible is such a beautiful, beautiful gift God has given to us. I love the Bible. That's why we study verse by verse through the Bible. We believe it's, it's important. And the more I study the Bible, the more I love God's word. I really do. Um, how, how do you perceive the word of God? Is it something that you love dearly? Is it something you love so much that you read it daily, like a love letter? Because that's really what it is, God's love letter to humanity, his plan for humanity, his, his um, you know, outline of what he wants us to do. Uh, but it's all based in his love. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The, Psalm 119 says that it, it, it's a way to cleanse yourself. How shall a young man cleanse his way? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word is just powerful and important, but some of you, you love it. Others of you, well, you feel guilty about it because you know you should read it more often and you come to Athey Creek and you're doing some you know, work in the word and that's great, but you, you kind of get a sense that, oh man, and every time you see your Bible, I should probably read that more. But, but that's some, or there's some, maybe even in this room or watching online saying, yeah, whatever, the Bible, you guys are weirdos. You guys are strange that you love the Bible. And we're gonna see some of those people today uh, in, in the scriptures. And uh, you know, it reminds me of a story. There was a, a, a man that was badly burned in an explosion in Kansas City years ago. Um, but evangelist Robert L. Sumner tells a story about him in his book, The Wonders of the Word of God. And his, uh, he talks about this guy, the victim, his face was badly burned. Um, because of that, he lost his eyesight altogether. In addition, did he get burned on his face, but his hands, uh, he, he lost his hands due to the fire. He was badly <clears throat> disfigured, <clears throat> and he was just a new Christian when this happened to him. So with no eyesight, no hands, one of the greatest disappointments for this man was that he, as a new Christian, couldn't read his Bible. Um, and so he'd heard of a woman who learned how to read Braille. Um, with a, she also didn't have hands, so she learned how to read Braille with her lips. She would put her lips up against the paper of those little raised, you know, uh, embossed little bumps of Braille, and she could read them with her lips. And so he, he got a, a, you know, a hold of the Braille Bible, which is expensive and, and quite challenging to just get one. But he got one. And he was so excited when he put his lips up to it, but the problem was his face was so badly burned, the nerve endings in his lips wouldn't, wouldn't actually feel the braille uh, bumps. And he was so saddened, and he, and he, but, but in, in his efforts to try to use his lips, he, he accidentally let his tongue touch one of the, the little bumps as he was kind of trying this out, and he realized that his tongue could feel the little dots on the Braille Bible. And so this man learned, taught himself to read Braille with the tip of his tongue. By the end of this book, the author of this book, by the end that he had written the story about this guy, this guy had read through his Bible in Braille four times with his tongue. 
Brett, I'm already feeling guilty. Man, I have eyeballs. Um, I got good, good eyeballs and I, I don't think I've read through the Bible four times. Man, if you look around the world where the Bible's been outlawed, even in China, um, there's stories of some of the Chinese Christians through the years who've, who've passed around single pages of the Bible and they would memorize the whole page because that's all they had is one page of the Bible. And they, they thought of the word as something precious to them. But sadly, there are those that think the Bible is some strange thing and it's a weird book and it's a book of literature and they, they look at the Bible in, in such a, a different way. But I, I really wanna remind you that that's such a pitfall for humanity to not recognize what the word of God really is. And that draws us to our, our text for the day. Uh, it's Hosea chapter eight, verse 12. Let's take a look, Hosea eight twelve. Now, before we read the verse, what's the context? Hosea the prophet, the 10 northern tribes was his people that he was prophesying to before the Assyrians would come and crush them because of their sin. But Hosea is saying, here's what the Lord says. And then, then he's speaking the word of the Lord to the people. And he's talking to Ephraim, Israel. And it's the he in this verse that we're gonna look at. He um, uh, is, or him uh, is the Ephraim, the, the, the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And it's a warning to them. And it's, a, it's, a, it's part of an indictment against them why they're gonna be judged by God. And it says here in verse 12, I have written to him, that is Ephraim, the 10 Northern tribes. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. I have written to him the great things of my law, but it was counted unto them a strange thing. Hmm. How is it that God's people, the Jews, could have come to this point of saying, man, yeah, yeah, we got the word of God. Now, what's the law? It says, I have written him the great things of the law. The law is another way of saying the Bible, if you would, in Hosea's time. Because they didn't have the Bible as we know it, you know, Genesis through Revelation. Um, you know, they had the Bible at that time that was really the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that was considered God's word. It was also called the law. And that's why when you read about that in the Old Testament, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's talking about the word of God as they knew it then. And what did they think of it? The, the, the law that had great things given to them through the law of God, the, the word of God, it seemed strange to them. What a sad indictment against God's people. It should have been precious to them. It should have been something that they cherished and loved, but, but at this point in their behavior and their sin and their debauchery, remember these are the people that are halfway worshiping God and halfway worshiping Baal, the, the pagan deity of the, the Canaanites. And these people had gotten so off course that the very word that God gave to them seemed like a strange thing. It's all part of a perspective. How is it that one person sees the, the law of the, the Lord like the psalmist? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Sweeter than honey, the law of the Lord is. How could it be that way to one person, but a strange thing to another? I think it has to do with what you're doing and where you're standing and what your, your worldview is. And dangerous, dangerous was the place where the people of Israel were at this time because they were in such rebellion, they didn't even recognize how beautiful the law was. They saw it as a strange thing. But in this verse, I find three things that the Lord gives us that are, that are kind of important for us to recognize. And just one little verse here, three things. And if you'll note, and, and, and we can maybe even jot them down if you want, but first notice with me, who is the author? 
Who gave the Jews this book? Who was the one who wrote the Bible? Well, as it turns out, the Lord says here, I have written to him the great things of my law. God claims that he wrote the law. Well, wait a minute, Brett, I protest. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Um, He was the author, wrong. Moses was the guy who penned it. He was sort of the scribe, if you would, while the Holy Spirit gave to Moses the inspired word of God. Um, this is something that people get hung up on. Well, who really wrote the Bible? It's just a bunch of men who wrote the Bible. Well, that, that's actually a very secular sort of way of looking at the Bible. And if you look at the Bible that way, man, it's gonna cause all kind of trouble for you. Because men are flawed, men are just goofy, including Moses. And, and if it's just Moses who wrote the law, then we might as well throw it away. But the Bible doesn't say Moses is the author. Here, God says, I have written, the Lord says, it is written by God, the finger of God. Well, I think Moses wrote it. Well, well, you remember the Holy Spirit gave it to me. I, I wonder about Moses as he's writing, you know, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What did that feel like? You're just writing and you, you know, have you ever felt inspired when you're writing or, you know, doing something you feel a little bit like, wow, this is kind of beyond me. I wonder if it's a little bit like that sense. Have you ever been talking to someone and you feel like the Lord by his Holy Spirit gives you words to say that you didn't have in your heart or brain before? and the Lord just kind of gives you something to say that's actually worthwhile, something that's meaningful. If you've never done that, by the way, or felt that, then there's a great thing that the Lord wants to do in you, and and he wants to fill his church with the Holy Spirit, and he will manifest himself through you by a word of knowledge or speaking a word of prophecy. That's not telling the future in New Testament time. That's a word of edification, exhortation, or comfort. Have you ever been talking to somebody like, Lord, just give me the words to say that I can speak rightly into this person's life. And there's something really exciting about when you sense the Lord's speaking to you. That's, that's what inspiration of the scripture must have been like as Moses was writing down. I wonder if we ever doubted, should I really write that? Like this one, this one cracks me up. Moses writing and the Lord says, okay, Moses, write this, that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Lord, you want me to write what? <laughs> that's, that's like, I remind myself of Moses, meek and humble. Uh, you know, it's like, like, I am the meekest man on the face of the earth. Just writing that, it's like, not even a meek thing, but, but unless, unless you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like the Lord say, yeah, Moses, write it. Okay, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But as it turns out, he really was because the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's just the way it works. And, and that's why the Bible tells us of itself in 2 Timothy 3.16, you should know this scripture because it's so important. All scripture, the Bible says, not some, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration is God breathed. God breathed out his word to man. Man wrote it down, you know, on parchment or whatever. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, which is teaching and instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And what's the result of a person who reads the inspired and accepts the inspired word of God? That, that man, the person who does that, the man of God may be perfect. Better word probably translated there, if you look it up in the Greek, is to be matured, fully matured. The man of God may be fully matured, thoroughly furnished or equipped unto all good works. What does the word of God do? It equips you and it matures you. If you believe it and accept it as the inspired, God-breathed word of God, it'll change your life. It'll empower you and you'll start to understand 
the beauty. In fact, this, this idea of accepting it as inspired, the Thessalonican church did this and Paul commends them there so powerfully in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, where he says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually or effectively worketh also in you that believe. When you believe it's the inspired word of God, like the Thessalonians did, what does it do? It's effective. It works effectively in your life if you approach it with belief that it's the inspired word of God. Now, if, if you approach it with unbelief, don't be shocked if it doesn't come to life. Like this is the way it works. The Bible explains, man, it's gonna work. The word of God will be effective to those that believe, but to those that don't believe or are cynical or doubtful, the word of God doesn't quite have the same effect because you need to approach it like everything in our walk with God, you need to approach it in faith. And faith is an important part of this whole thing. So all scripture given by inspiration of God, and it's gonna thoroughly mature and thoroughly equip the man or the woman of God who wants to walk with the Lord. That's what the word of God says of itself. It is written by God, inspired by God. And, and that's the first thing you have to understand when you look at it, to realize that it's the word of God. And by the way, when you approach it that way, it forces you and me and us to approach it saying, well, then if it's inspired and it's not written by men, we have to accept it as perfect, infallible, unmistakable, without goofs or errors. You see, that's the thing about the scriptures that we have to understand. If you approach it saying, man, I'm gonna trust that this is the word of God, then it forces you to kind of approach it with, if you see a, an apparent contradiction or something that doesn't make sense, then you have to understand, well, maybe the Bible explains this or shows us how this works out. And as a, a person who's been reading the Bible and studying you know, biblical scholars, which are kind of the heavyweights, um, you know, that's why the Bible remains solid today, is because it is, in fact, without error and without contradiction. And if somebody, like your pipe-puffing, cardigan-sweater-wearing college professors, who are a bunch of nincompoops, most of them, there's a lot of good, good ones too, but, but most of them are really wacko. And they go around saying, well, the Bible's full of errors. And I always love to, to sort of call people out on that and say, really, can you show me where the errors are? Because all the apparent contradictions and errors so-called are all just a bunch of hot air. It's a, there's a reason why the Bible has withstood millennia of scrutiny. You'd think that somebody could have said, okay, we're gonna show you how bad the Bible really is and how flawed it really is. And so much so that finally people would just go, you know, the billions of people that actually believe the Bible, they just go, yeah, the Bible's a little hard to, hard to believe if you really work hard and study and, and fight. In fact, the more people try to tear it apart and study it, the more they get saved because the Bible is in fact incredible. And the reason it's incredible because God is the author. Who wrote it? God himself. Who's the author? God himself. Man, that's the important thing. We approach it on that basis. The Lord says that I have written the great things of the law. The Lord claims this and the people of Israel couldn't care less. How tragic that was for them. But be that as it may, that's the first thing we see in this verse. The second thing is, what is the subject of the Bible. This little tiny verse here in Hosea 8, 12 gives us the subject, but I, it's fairly general, but I love the, the way it's put. I have written unto him the great things of the law. The Lord has written great things. Do you believe that the Bible's full of great things? 
Or, or do, you, do you, like the cynic, the skeptic, say, the Bible's full of blood and guts. The Bible's full of this or that. And people that approach it, uh, you know, like, like they know what the subject of the Bible is. But I've noticed there's a lot of people that think they know what the Bible says, but actually don't. You know, it's interesting because um, when we talk about the subject and saying it's great, what's the greatest subject in the Bible? Well, I think we could say in a single word, Jesus. Jesus is the greatest subject in the Bible. And it's not just that he's the greatest because he is the greatest, but it's also the greatest, even numerically or topically, the Bible's all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Oh, come on, Brett, that's it's only in the gospels, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrong. This is such an important thing, do you know? It's like this, it's, it's a little uh, series of verses. Uh, John chapter one, verse one, you guys know this one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, check it out, was God. Huh? The word was God? Are you suggesting that your Bible and your handbread is God? Uh, this is not God, this object with paper. But the, the, the content of the word of God is Jesus. How do I know that? Well, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then in the same chapter, verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Who's that? That's Jesus. Which by the way, if, if you uh, doubt that Jesus is God, remember this, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's one of those scriptures that tells us about the Trinity that God is Jesus, Jesus is God. They're one and the same. But all that to say, the, the author in Hebrews pulls from the psalmist and quotes from the Psalms when he says this, then I said, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book, it is written. Now this is talking in the context here of Hebrews, it's talking about the sacrificial system. And, uh, and really this is basically claiming that Jesus replaces all those little sacrifices of the Old Testament law, those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. When you read about lambs being sacrificed in the Old Testament, that's talking about Jesus. Remember when John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the lamb that was slain once for all, for all of humanity. And so the Bible says of itself that Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Man, I love this about the Bible, this, the stories about you know, the Old Testament stories. Um, now, some of, some of you might say, Brett, I've read the Old Testament stories and they're kind of boring. Once in a while you get a mildly amusing story like maybe the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. But even that story is kind of only mildly amusing unless you see it's multi-layered, multi-dimensional properties. If you read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, a huge chunk of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. And you see this father who sends his son to find his other sons in the Dothan and, and the sons hate him and reject him and throw him in a pit. And then he's left in the pit until they pull him out of the pit and, and sell him as a slave. And he goes off into Egypt. He's there for many, many years. And he walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. Uh, and then the sons come because there's a famine in the land and they, they, they're all dying. So they go to Egypt because they hear there's this dude, they don't know it's their brother, Joseph, this dude that has all this food and the whole world's coming to him for food. And the Jews see their, this, this, uh, this Egyptian guy and they're bowing down before him, hoping to get food. And you know the story, Joseph says, you guys, I'm your brother. Um, and they're shocked and stunned. And they realize it was their brother whom they had betrayed. If it's just that story, that's a pretty good story. 
But if you look at it a multi-layered, that's a beautiful and amazing, perfect picture of Jesus Christ. God sent his only begotten son to do what? Seek and save the lost, his, the brothers that were lost, the Jewish people particularly. And, and when Jesus came, just like Joseph, the brothers, the Jews said, we will not have this man rule over us. And they despised him and rejected him and crucified him and threw him in a tomb, just like Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit. And, and then they pulled him out and um, he was sold off into slavery and went off to Egypt for a long time. Jesus came out of the tomb and was resurrected and went away, but the Jews still didn't recognize him. And, and by the way, when, you know, when the Jews saw Joseph, they thought he was an Egyptian. What's Egypt a type of? The world. They just thought he was a regular worldling, just a worldly dude from Egypt. That's what they thought of Jesus. How is it, Jesus, that you and your disciples are picking corn on the Sabbath? That's not a religious Jewish thing. How is it that you're healing the sick on the Sabbath and, and not keeping Sabbath day? Like they, they looked at him as sort of a Gentile. That's the way they viewed Jesus, hanging out with publicans and sinners and, and criticizing him for that. They didn't see it. They, they didn't realize that Jesus was their Messiah, just like they didn't realize Joseph was their brother. But then even as Joseph saved them all and they all, their eyes were opened and they saw that that was their brother Joseph, the Jews, their eyes will be open and they'll see that Jesus is the Messiah. Like the, the picture, I just gave you maybe 10 points that are similar. I could give you a hundred in that story alone. And we could go on and on in the Old Testament. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything. And I hope you understand that because it makes the Bible come to life. That's only like a, a single layer of dimension that I just showed you right there. And I, I believe the Bible's multidimensional. In fact, I wonder if you and I have no idea how multi-layered the Bible really is. Once in a while, we get little glimpses into layers that, that you know, you kind of think, oh man, this is too much. This is where I, I would say the fingerprints of God are on his word. And it just shows us this is not some book of man. One of my favorite ones is in the book of Genesis. Why don't you flip on over to Genesis chapter five real quick. And, and, and this is where some of you made New Year's resolutions in times past. I'm gonna read through the Bible in a year. And you made it right to Genesis chapter five where you come to the genealogy and that's where you ended and said, forget it. Because the Bible's boring. That's what people think. But if you go to Genesis chapter five, um, you have this amazing uh, genealogy and it goes from Adam and Eve, from Adam <clears throat> all the way to Noah, the whole antediluvian world uh, and the descendants of Adam, uh, that's who we have listed here. So it starts, let, let's start in verse three, Genesis 5, three. And Adam lived 130 years and begat his son in his own likeness after his image called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years. And he begat sons and daughters and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So 930 years, that's when they were living close to a thousand years in these days in the pre-flood world. Well, verse six, Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. And uh, then um, it says in verse nine, Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And verse 12, Canaan lived 70 years and begat the first Hawaiian person, Mahalil. Um, <laughs> okay, that, I just made that up. But, but um, Canaan begat Mahalil. And then verse 15, Mahalil lived 60 and five years and begat Jared. And verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and he begat Enoch. 
And then, um, you know, you love Enoch because it says um, in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Um, and then it says um, in verse 25, and Methuselah uh, lived uh, 180 and seven years and begat Lamech. And uh, verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son and he called his name Noah saying this uh, same shall comfort us. Noah's name means rest and comfort. So they, they named him Noah because he shall be a comfort concerning our work and our toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. So you go all the way from Adam to Noah and you're like, okay, Brett, why are we looking at this boring passage? Well, as it turns out, this is an interesting passage. You remember when we were in the book of Hosea studying the names of Hosea and Gomer's kids, remember? Scattered, not my people, uh, no more mercy. Like these are the names of Hosea and Gomer's kids as we uh, study them. But in the Bible, the names of people do matter, uh, what people are named. And if you take these names and you look at their meanings, it's kind of an interesting study. In fact, Adam, most of you already know what this one is. His name means man. Um, it comes from Adoma, the Hebrew word, which means man, it's the first man. And that's pretty easy, straightforward, straightforward enough right there, Adam, man. Seth, Adam's son. Now you say, what about Cain and Abel? Well, um, um, there's actually a story behind that. Um, Adam's son was named Seth, which means appointed. <clears throat> when he was born, do you remember what Eve said when, when Seth was born? She said, for God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So Cain slew Abel, Cain was wicked and cursed. And so uh, she gave birth to Seth and called him appointed. And then, uh, you know, Seth, his son's name was Enosh. And um, this was an interesting name. It, it means subject unto death. Um, uh, his name means mortal, frail, miserable. But the idea is like if you were diagnosed with a deadly disease, and you're subject unto death. You're like, that's your future, guaranteed. That's what Enosh was made, um, subject unto death. Then the next guy, Kenan, his name means sorrowful. Uh, dirge or elegy is kind of the idea, but sorrow is the pr pr product of Kenan. Uh, uh, and then the Hawaiian dude, Mahalil, um, his name means blessed of God. And the reason we do that is Mahal, Mahalel or Mahalal, uh, it means blessed or praise. And the, the last L at the end of that is the name of God. Thus it means the blessed of God. And then uh, Jared, Mahalil's son, uh, his name uh, comes from the word Yared in the Hebrew, which uh, means um, one coming down or shall come down. This is an interesting, uh, why would you name your son that? Well, as it turns out, there's a link to the name Jared with Genesis chapter six. Do you remember when the sons of God came down and had relationships with the daughters of men and corrupted them. Do you remember that? There's a strange story. It produces the Nephilim, uh, the fallen ones of Genesis chapter six. Uh, that's a whole nother story. But that's the idea is as those uh, um, sons of God, one comes down, that's what this guy's name means as one is coming down. Uh, the idea is from the heavenlies is interestingly enough. Um, and then you got Enoch. Many of you guys know Enoch. If you read your Bible, he's a famous character who walked with God and pleased God. And um, so um, Enoch means dedicated. Uh, he was the first of four generations of preachers. Uh, and he gave the earliest recorded prophecy 
uh, Enoch did. And, and it was a prophecy concerning the second coming of Christ of all things, uh, the earliest prophecy uh, in the Bible. Uh, then you got Methuselah, the guy who lived longer than anybody else. But this is an interesting name, his death shall bring. Well, why would anybody name their, their son his death shall bring? Well, as it turns out, the flood of Noah did not come as a total surprise, by the way, if you, if you know your scriptures. It had been preached on for four generations, but something strange happened when Enoch was 65 years old from the time he walked with God, as the Bible says. Enoch was given a prophecy that, was, um, that said as long as his son Methuselah was alive, the judgment of the flood would not come, it'd be withheld. But as soon as Methuselah died, the flood would come and the world would be destroyed. So Enoch named his son to reflect this prophecy that he was given. The name Methuselah comes from two roots, muth, a root, which means death, and from the other part of the word shalach, which uh, means to bring or to send forth. Thus, the, if you put the, you know, the name of Methuselah together, it means his death shall bring. The idea is his death is gonna bring in the flood and the judgment upon the world. Once he dies, his death's gonna bring in the, um, the flood. So that's why his name means his death shall bring. Then you got Lamech, which is a word that's linked to one of our English words where we get it from the Hebrew word. Our word lament is kind of the same idea, um, evident in our English language, but it's a lament, uh, lamentation. Lamech suggests despairing, uh, a despairing lament. And then you've got Noah, of course, uh, the son of Lamech, which is delivered from uh, Nacham to bring to rest or uh, bring comfort, rest and comfort as, um, as it turns out. So you say, okay, Brett, great. Thanks for all the names, whatever. Uh, can we go now? Not yet. If you make the composite list of these names, it's, it pretty much puts it out this way. Man appointed subject to death, sorrowful. The blessed God shall come down dedicated. His death shall bring to the despairing rest and comfort. That's the gospel message right there in a nutshell. I, I love this. This is where, you know, you kind of think, did Jewish dudes sit around and go, hey, let's make the Jesus story in the genealogy of Genesis chapter five. Well, as it turns out, the answer is there's no way Jewish guys did that. They didn't believe in Jesus. They still don't believe in Jesus. But right here embedded in the Hebrew Bible is God's plan for humanity. Man appointed subject unto death, sorrowful. The blessed God shall come down dedicated. His death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. I think that's just the fingerprints of God on the scriptures. You couldn't make that happen with a real genealogy of real people. By the way, if you're interested, um, Matthew chapter one has another genealogy that's incredible. And, and I'm not a mathematician, so this one doesn't really thrill me as much. In fact, I kind of hate math. Glad I'm a pastor because I don't have to do math. But there's a, there's a guy, Dr. Ivan Panin, back in the 1800s who spent his whole life when he discovered something, he spent the rest of his life studying this. In Matthew one genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, everything in that genealogy is a multiple of seven. Like it's a really weird thing. Everything's, now seven, if you know, is, is a number in the Bible of completion and perfection. It's kind of God's number in the Bible. And it's an amazing thing. Like everything from, if you go to the Greek text of Matthew five, you find that every time a, a, a vowel is used, it's, a, it's used in the multiples of seven. Every time, you know, a certain Greek letter is used, it's a multiple of seven. Every time uh, a woman is talked about, it's in the multiples of seven. Like it's an amazing everything. And I, I'm not even doing service telling you all the things, but 
Look up Dr. Ivan Panin if you're a mathematician and you'll be shocked. He spent his whole life studying this and, and you think how could a real genealogy of real people actually work out so perfectly in the Greek language? It's, it's one of those mysterious things of the Bible that most people don't even know is there. But it's, it's the fingerprints of God, I believe, on there. But all that to say, um, I love the Bible because it's great. It's full of great things. That's what the Lord says in our verse here and back to you know Hosea chapter eight, verse 12. He says, oh, I have written to him the great things of my law. The, the Bible's full of great things. And that's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. But that brings us to the second part of that is, uh, or the third, I think, point is how was the Bible received? How was it received? Well, it says here, the people, they received this great law of the Lord. They counted it as a strange thing. I'm amazed how many people, even pastors think the Bible is sort of strange. Um, I've had pastor friends of mine, Brett, are you kidding? You at Athe Creek, you guys are gonna go through the book of Numbers? Verse by verse? Are you kidding? And people are gonna come to your church? They'll actually attend? You wanna know what's funny about Athey Creek? All of you guys must be really weird because our church grows the fastest in the most crazy, seemingly boring books. You wanna know the two books we saw some of the greatest growth? Um, the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers. And if you know those books, like the book of Numbers has whole chapters. There were nine spoons, 11 snuffers, and 12 silver cups. And that was given to the tribe of Reuben. The tribe of Gad, nine spoons, 12 cups, and three snuffers. And that was the tribe of Dan. Now the tribe of Gad. And you go through the 12 tribes and it says it over and over the same exact list. Um, why would anybody do that? That's, that's a strange thing. Brett, you need to be more con, you know, contemporary and go through books of authors uh, that have written in modern times. Do you guys remember back in the 90s when every church was going through 40 days of purpose? Um, the purpose-driven life, you know, Rick Warren's 40 days of purpose. The church has just, just said, Look, we're gonna hang up the Bible for a little while and we're gonna go for this 40 days of purpose and that's great. Oh, there's Bible in that, of course. But, but my, my argument is this, we have a bestseller right here. This book right here, Athey Creek's been going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter for 25 years. And you know what's amazing is we find ourselves hugely blessed as we do this. Um, and and, and this, is, this is what I love about you guys, that you guys are here and you're receiving this as the word of God and not the word of men. And, 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 if, and the more we do this, the more we realize what a waste of time going through the word of men. I don't care what other men have to say. I wanna hear what God has to say. I wanna hear what the Bible says. I don't wanna know what my opinion is. You don't wanna know what my opinion is either. I try to hold that back as much as possible. <laughs> um, but I want, I want us to say, what does God have to say about everything? Because that's the only thing that matters. Now, what I gotta say also is the word of God is more than just uh, a book because we receive it, if you receive it as the word of God, even those chapters on the candle snuffers and the silver spoons, you're like, you know what, somehow I feel blessed that we went through that. Do you guys remember when we went through all those names? There was, there was a, a Wednesday night particularly, you guys might remember if you've been here more than three or four years. Um, a, a few Wednesday nights, we had to go through name after name. And these are Hebrew names that are hard enough to pronounce, but hundreds and hundreds of names. 
And, and we went through them, but there was this, I, I don't know how to explain it, but if you were there on that Wednesday night, we, all, we were all excited because we went through the scriptures and it just made our hearts feel warmed and encouraged. And we even had a, an applause at the end of that study. And just people were like, and it wasn't because um, I'm amazing at pronouncing Hebrew names. It's because the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And even in the volume of the book of these genealogies and names and stuff, there's, there's just Christ embedded in it all. It's the scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. And the question you have to ask is how do you receive it? Because even pastors today say, Brett, you guys are, it's strange that you would go through Leviticus with a church today. In fact, did you notice back in the 90s, all the churches started bailing on their midweek Bible study? Uh, there's not a lot of churches that do a midweek Bible study anymore because you know what? They all thought, well, the Bible's not really that relevant or the Bible's not that important. We're just gonna do topical studies that we think are important topics of the day on Sunday. And we're just gonna kind of assume and hope that people read their Bibles at home. Here at Athey Group, what we're trying to do is say, we're gonna read our Bibles here and we want you to read your Bible at home as well, daily. We wanna just fill our lives with God's word because we love it because we have a passion for it, because it's God's word. Who wrote it? God. What's in it? Great things. How is it to be received? Hopefully we receive it with joy and gladness and, and, and man, so important. By the way, on this, how is it received? Um, you know, I've noticed there's the negative people that, that don't receive it very well. And there's a couple of complaints that you'll hear people say. I've, I've seen this over the years. The first one is, you know, why is, why is the Bible counted as a sort of a strange thing? like the people of Hosea's time. Why? Well, three main things that I, I've noticed. Number one, um, one problem is they never read it. People that say, well, the Bible's strange. They haven't even read it. How many times has a person come up, well, I've read the Bible. And then I always like to say, well, really, did you read the whole Bible? Well, well, well yeah, pretty much. Well, can you tell me what, what, what book did you particularly stand out in the story? Or like, like if you call people out, what you'll find is they haven't actually read their Bible. Well, I, I've heard, you know, that verse, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's not really in the Bible. <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the good book. Nope, that's in the wrong book. That's actually the Quran. Um, people, most people haven't even read their Bibles and they think they know it because they heard a scripture by their grandma at one point or something. And I've noticed that's just actually kind of a lie that we've told ourselves. Yeah, I've read the Bible. It's kind of this story of blood and guts. And I've heard about Samson and Joseph and some of these stories. But, but man, if you haven't really read your Bible, you, there's, this, there's a, God has written a book and he wrote it for you to read. And the question is, have you actually even read it? People criticize the Bible or think it's a strange thing because they haven't even read it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers from several generations ago in 1855, he said this fiery statement. He was known for some fiery statements. Uh, check this one out. This one cracks me up. Spurgeon said, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, do I look like Spurgeon? <laughs> uh, he might be a little a bit of a lightweight compared to me. But anyway, um, uh, no, uh, man, I, I gotta get one of those canes. That, that's just really cool right there. But be that as it may, um, I, I wonder if some of our Bibles are just sitting in our shelves and, and we don't actually read it. People, people think they've read the Bible just because they own a Bible or they saw a Bible. But have you really read it? So people count it a strange thing because number one, they, they, they say they've read it, but they haven't. Number two, it's because they think it's boring. 
Um, but the thing about the Bible is it does take a little work. And I'll, I'll confess, there are times where you read the Bible, you're like, man, this is boring. But what, it, the more boring the section of scripture, that means you gotta dig a little deeper and do a little more work in it. And as you start to dig in the most boring sections, um, you start digging there, you'll find the gems. You find some of the most amazing things in the Bible in what some people might call the most boring parts of the Bible. Um, the Bible is like a telescope. You know, if a man or a woman looks through a telescope, he sees worlds beyond and things off in the distance with clarity. And it's quite, a, quite an amazing tool. They've used it in the pirate days, in the Navy vessel days, they'd pull out a telescope and what a cool implement, what a cool tool. But, but he looks at his, if he's just looking at his telescope, um, he doesn't see anything but that. It's just a tube with some glass in it. If you're looking at a telescope, it's very one dimensional, you're like, yeah, whatever, I don't care about that. But it's when you look through the telescope, that's when you actually see, wow, this is pretty cool. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see what God wants for you, to see what is beyond, to see what the future holds. But most people only look at the Bible and they only see a book. They're not looking through the Bible to see the power that it possesses. Sadly, people are poorer because they haven't given legitimacy to God's holy word. Because they never read it, because they say it's boring. And then this is a big one right here in the third final one, because the Bible is contrary to our sin nature. People don't like the Bible or they count it strange because it goes against them. It's been said men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. When you read the Bible, you're like, well, I don't like that. It says I'm not supposed to have sex before marriage. I don't like that. But you know what? The problem is, here's God who created your body and, and invented the beautiful institution called marriage and even created sexual activity. That was God's invention. But man just says, yeah, whatever. We're gonna do it the way we wanna do it. Even though God says, no, there's a very specific way that I want you as humans to do this. And in the marriage, in the context of marriage, sex is a beautiful thing. Outside of that, it's called fornication, which is evil and sexual and wrong. The people say, well, I don't like that. But see, that's the problem. They, they blow off the Bible because they don't like what it says. And that's the sad thing. And they're, they're not joyful. They're wondering, why are we so miserable? Why are we so messed up? That's the, the people of Hosea's time. The Bible's a strange thing. These are the reasons why they blew it off. By the way, in 1 Corinthians, it tells us in chapter two, verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. The natural man, you might say carnal or unspiritual man. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, if you wanna have the Bible come to life, you first, you need to be a Christian. You need to be a person of faith and accept Christ. Otherwise, you'll look through the book and you'll see very little. You need to have the Holy Spirit sort of open your spiritual eyes. Remember Elijah the prophet and, and he came out and the, the servant of the prophet said, oh man, we're toast, look at this army. And the, Lord, the prophet said, oh Lord, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes and suddenly he not only saw the army that was there, but he saw spiritual armies of angels and chariots and, and the Lord opened his spiritual eyes. You and I need that. If you're gonna read the Bible just as a secularist, an atheist, don't be surprised if it is boring and you don't get it. 
The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. To them, they're foolishness. But to the person of faith, you can spiritually discern, wow, this is something of power and importance. Man, the Bible. I remember when I was a little kid, I first grabbed a Bible. It was the same kind of Bible I have here, a King James cameo Bible that my grandmother had given to my father when my dad was in his wild years, before his, he was a Christian, his BC days. And, and, um, but my grandma wrote a few little lines, and I remember as a little kid reading those, and they really stuck with me. There, there was two lines. She, one wrote, she wrote in the front cover, she said, you know, Dear Todd, that's my dad's name, um, in this book, God's book, you will find the answer. And then below that, she also had written this, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. It's really true. Sometimes it's our own sin and our own foolishness that keeps us from loving the Bible. We have a temptation to love the Bible, but our other temptations sort of overwhelm just having a love for the Bible, but we're so much poorer for it. The person who loves the Bible is a rich person spiritually. There's a richness and a joy to the person who actually gets the Bible. And the Bible provides so much and the Bible says of itself so much. Um, there is an author who is unknown who wrote something that is really one of the more powerful statements on the Bible that I think I've ever read. And it lines up with scripture, which is really cool, but it puts it in a way that I think just kind of in a summary, here's what the Bible does and I'll read it to you. He says, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. I love that. It's so perfect of a summary. And, and yet here's our Bible so many times sitting on our nightstand, just waiting to be used. But it does all that. I wanna challenge you to be a student of scripture, not just here at Athey Creek on a Sunday or, or on, a, on a Wednesday night, but man, daily read your Bible and pray that the Holy Spirit will just enlighten you and open your eyes and let the power of God's word do its work. Man, I hope we have Athey Creekers, I hope you have a real Bible. Not just your iPad and iPhone, don't, don't get me wrong, I love technology and I use iPhones and if, you're wearing, if you have an iPad, don't hide it right now. Some of you are like, oh, okay. It's, like, um, it's okay, it's okay. But can I tell you, there's something about a real Bible with paper 
where you start to know where things are on the page. And when you're doing your devotional reading, you know what's so cool is you know where it is on the page. And while you're reading it, it won't go ding, a little message popping up. And, and, and you know what that message is? It's pretty much Satan. I thought it was my girlfriend, Brett. Yeah, exactly, Satan. No, I'm just kidding, just, just kidding. No, when your phones, you know, your, our phones have so many you know, distractions and you know, there's, there's you, you, gotta, you gotta, you know, read your Bible and you get messages and there's Fruit Ninja or whatever people play now. I don't know what people are playing anymore. Um, but man, you, you, you can get so easily distracted. There's something about just carving out time saying, I'm gonna take my, my Bible and read it and get one that, that you like and that you keep in your hand and keep in your backpack or wherever it is at work, just keep your Bible with you. Man, it's said the Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. It's true. Let the Bible do its work in your life. Be richer, be blessed by the word of God. And if you do that, man, you will find out that the word of God is in fact living and powerful. And it's, it's something that you and I should never neglect. Amen? Amen.